Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. I'm always looking for cutting edge information on ecosystem regeneration, regenerative living, and all the skills and knowledge one needs to really make a change in the direction our society is headed. Now I used to browse the internet for articles and blogs on these topics, but it's a nightmare searching through amateur posts, snippets of useful text in a mountain of fluff, and then trying to vet the sources and the authors. Now when I really want to learn something in depth and explore a topic or idea thoroughly, I look for books from expert authors. My friends at New Society Publishers have the best titles on a wide range of topics. From the Natural Building Essential series to homesteading, permaculture, community building, and so much more. Many of their authors are also the experts that I've interviewed for this show. Hey Sarah, tell me about some of the new books that you have coming out this year. Thanks Oliver. The first book, Soil Science for Gardeners, Working with Nature to Build Soil Health, is an accessible science-based guide to understanding soil fertility. The author, Robert Pavlis, has been a gardener for over four decades, and in the book he debunks common soil myths, explores the rhizosphere, and provides a personalized soil fertility improvement program. It's written for the home gardener, market gardener, and micro-farmer. Soil Science for Gardeners is packed with information to help you grow thriving plants. The next book is the second edition of the best-selling Keeping Bees with a Smile, Principles and Practice of Natural Beekeeping. This book shows beginner and practicing beekeepers how to attract local bee swarms, keep bees healthy and productive, build simple bee-friendly hives, and harvest honey without stressing bees. Keeping Bees with a Smile is chock full of techniques for natural beekeeping, plus other fascinating beekeeping advice you won't find anywhere else. So when you're tired of wading through incomplete and lousy information online, visit NewSociety.com and get the books that will take your learning to a whole new level. And don't forget, listeners of this show can now get 25% off by entering the code EDGE25 at checkout. That's E-D-G-E 25 at checkout. Welcome to the show. Alright, today we're going to kick off a brand new series on homesteading. And in the past, I've done a lot of episodes focusing on specific skills and enterprises that people integrate into a regenerative lifestyle. But in this series, I'm going to be speaking with people who've put a bunch of those pieces together into a lifestyle centered on positive interactions with nature and a move towards self-sustainability. Now, homesteading is a general term that originally comes from the Homesteading Acts in the United States, which were a series of laws enacted between 1862 up until the 1930s, which allowed an applicant to acquire ownership of government land or otherwise public land for free or very cheap if they lived on the land and farmed that land for a set period of time. Canada and Australia also had similar policies in their past to promote expansion and settlement of their large countries when they were newly colonized. But these days, since the acts have long since expired, homesteading has come to mean a lifestyle of self-sufficiency and is more characterized by subsistence farming, back-to-the-land movements, and small-scale home economics. Now, different areas around the world have different names for this concept. For example, a small holding or a croft in the UK are fairly synonymous with a homestead. 
Given the rise in popularity of homesteading and people wanting to reconnect with nature and learn to work more intimately with the land to produce their needs and livelihood, I wanted to create a series that helps people who are aspiring to this kind of lifestyle prepare themselves for the dramatic changes and many wonderful options available to them. Homesteading isn't just one thing. Far from it, in fact. The people interviewed in this series will explain how they made the transition from a more conventional and dependent life to one of more autonomy. They'll explain the struggles, lessons, victories, and failures that got them to where they are and what advice they would give to others starting out. So, especially for those of you who dream of making a big lifestyle change, this series is for you. Be sure to contact me directly if you have a specific question, idea, or worry that you'd like me to address in one of these episodes, or if there's an expert or homesteader that you'd really like to hear from on an interview. As always, you can contact me directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. Now let's jump into the first interview in this series. Many of the people I know who've made a big change in their life towards self-sufficient living in nature were inspired to do so after a major wake-up call event in their lives, and Natalie Bogwalker is no different. After a serious bike accident caused her to reevaluate her life choices, she decided to go all in and went to live primitively in the woods at the Wild Roots community in North Carolina. After years of immersion and learning in that lifestyle, she became motivated to share her knowledge with more people and create a larger community movement. In this interview, Natalie talks about her journey of making such a drastic change early on in her life, what she learned from the experience, and how it has informed the way that she lives and teaches on her homestead now. She breaks down a lot of the routines and time investments on the different operations of her place and how the dynamics of having different operations like the classes and workshops, apprenticeship programs, and other community connections affect everyday life. Some of my favorite moments are from Natalie's observations from experience living very primitively to the more modern and connected way that she lives now and her recommendations for people weighing their options and considering a move to one of these lifestyles. She also gives great practical information on wild plant resources as food, medicine, and much more. Like every interview in this series, Natalie's setup and lifestyle represents a few of the millions of options out there for how to plan, build, and run a homestead, and it's meant to give you ideas and pragmatic insights from people who are doing and living this every day. So with that said, I'll get us started with this interview with Natalie. Hey, Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to finally connect. We've been trying to make this happen uh, through, through an intermediary since like July. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm so happy that it's finally, it's finally worked. Well, this is indicative of the, the really busy and involved lifestyle that you have. And I can't wait to start talking about sort of the intricacies and the advice that you've learned from homesteading and kind of rewilding that you've learned for such a long time. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Let's do it. All right. So like with everybody, let's start with your background because you've got quite a story about how you sort of transitioned and tried out a lot of different things before getting here. Um, Did you grow up with a family that was closely connected to nature or did you find your way there through a longer path? I grew up um, in the country. My family was, my dad just, you know, had a, had a nine to five job. Well, more like probably seven to 
7 to 8 p.m. job. And then and my mom um, was able to mostly stay home with us, and she was really connected with the natural world, um, not in the exact same way that I am now, but like she spent a lot of time gardening and she spent a lot of time hiking in the woods and she did a lot of native plant rescues and she spent some time growing food, not a whole lot, but some. And, um, and my parents, like we would go out and pick blackberries and do some, do some seasonal foraging, um, which is really common in most parts of the world for everyone, but kind of rare in the U S. So I was really lucky to have that. So I grew up definitely, um, being able to wander through large tracts of forest and open fields. And I think that that was super helpful for me, but it was, it was within a pretty conventional, um, lifestyle. Okay, yeah. So within that sort of conventional lifestyle, what inspired you to kind of take a veer off in a different direction and really reconnect with nature and then get to the place where now you're teaching this to other people? Well, you know, a few things happened. One is when I was um, when I was 15, I did something called Northwest Youth Corps. And so I went for six weeks and worked in the woods with um, a group of about 15 other kids and a couple of mentors and we did trail maintenance and restoration and um, piled slash (laughs) and made brush piles, um, burn piles and just, just were spent a bunch of time doing work in the national forest. And that was huge for me. Like just being, being immersed in nature. Like I'd gone hiking before that with my aunt who was an amazing woman um, and really exposed me to nature a lot, but the, but actually being like sleeping outside, drinking wild water, like that whole experience for six weeks being a teenager was pretty monumental. And so that really got me loving wildness. And then when I was 19, I got, I, I was actually studying genetic engineering, which is just so ironic, but I was studying genetic engineering. I really wanted to help find a cure for AIDS. Um, and I, at the time, was a junior at university, was just really like fast track for, um, for becoming a scientist. And then I got hit by a car and that my whole life flashed before my eyes as, you know, is so, you know, they say that happens and it did. And, um, and I really looked at my life and made some big choices. And I decided to quit school and go traveling and really, which I think is just, I mean, it's really interesting. Like what I ended up doing is, is very similar to what a lot of people in indigenous or traditional cultures do as far as some sort of adult initiation. But it was just kind of forced on me by being hit by this car, which was in some ways I say the best thing that ever happened to me. And so I went traveling. I actually went to Spain on that trip, but I went all over and I ended up living in a commune in, in Virginia um, for a little while. And then I went back to school and I studied ecological agriculture and like centered myself on a really different path that was much more earth centered and focused on, um, on deep and radical earth connection. And so I'm really, I'm really thankful 
for that change. And that that's kind of what led me on, led me on this path. And that started when I was 19 and now I'm 41 and a lot's happens in the interim. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel really thankful for this path. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And it's one I'm sure that a lot of people can kind of resonate with, you know, I'm sure they haven't had exactly the same experiences, but a lot of people sort of find themselves uh, going down a certain path or direction in their lives and some sort of event jolts them out of it and causes them to rethink their priorities. And so from from those experiences traveling, and we actually had a lot of overlap in some of the places that we've been, we talked uh, previously about being pretty much right in parallel communities in Guatemala for a while. And now I'm in Spain, not far from some areas where you traveled. It's interesting yeah. how these kind of journeys often take people to similar places. Yeah. But so you said that you went back to the United States and you started living at the Wild Roots community in North Carolina. Is this about right in the chrono chronology of, of your events? Yeah, I, I there there was a lot of a lot of traveling. Like I went and lived in Central America for for a while and um, did all sorts of <laughs> worked at a hot spring. You know, did did went on sure. these epic bike trips. But eventually, yeah, when I was about twenty three, I ended up in North Carolina at the Wild Roots Community, which had just gotten started. And um, I was there. I was actually living in Atlanta and. Um, because I was in Central America, I got sick. And then my dad actually got sick at the same time I moved in. They were living in Atlanta at the time. So I moved in with them and, um, was living there and just fell in love with the ecology of the Southeast. And so I wrote an email to everyone I knew and asked if anyone knew of a community that was into wild foods, because that was one of my big passions at the time. Um, that was in the South. And one of my friends was like, Oh, you know, my friend just was part of starting this community called wild roots. And so I went to the very first wild foods hike, um, which was, I guess, 18 years ago or so and hosted by wild roots. And then I moved there soon after and, um, lived there for five years and wild built a bark hut that I lived in. We got all of our water from springs and from the creek. And we, I built the bark hut out of um, hemlocks that it was before the woolly adelgid had hit the Southeast. So out of hemlock um, saplings and tulip poplar bark and lashed it together with rawhide and hickory bark. And then yeah, just, and we started all of our fire by friction. We cooked all of our food over fire. It was super primitive, like very, yeah, very, like very it. hardcore. And it was really, really awesome. And I was just living a dream. It was amazing. But then I, um, I really came to a place where I was really wanting to share that passion um, and that connection. And so I started this event called the Firefly Gathering, which is a, um, which is a primitive and uh, just ecological skills gathering. It's called skills for living with the earth. And it later at one time it was the biggest earth skills or primitive skills gathering in the country. And I've since passed it on. I passed it on um, two years ago, which was really amazing. Um, and it's still happening here in North Carolina. So I started that and that, 
just, it's so crazy these days, like, you know, organizing a primitive skills gathering, it's really hard to do when you live, <laughs> when you live so in a bar cut. Yeah, and when it, you live by those primitive skills. Exactly. And there were, and back then self smartphones weren't a thing, you know, and, and, um, so I wasn't really able to do that work and that work was becoming more and more important to me, just the sharing skills for living close with the earth. So I ended up moving, but, um, but that time was, was really lovely and very foundational for me. Yeah, I can imagine Now I know at, at a lot of different stages in, in dreaming about how people want to change their lifestyles that can be really over romanticized the really primitive steps and, and the extremity of that type of lifestyle. What would you say from your experience in, in kind of going all in like that to, to people who romanticize that and, and if, if it's realistic for them to make a transition that drastic? It was really hardcore, man. I mean, I it think sounded that, like it, yeah. Yeah. I Our was, cut? How I did was, that work in winter? It was hard. I mean, it was, it was fine. It was fine because we had community. It's really different trying to do things on your own. Sure. And um, in winter, yeah, I mean, we actually got a bunch of blankets and put them up in the bar cut. And, and one of my friends at this time had a, had a yurt. It's actually mm. called a yom. It's this variation on a yurt. And who's at, which are actually made by my current neighbor, which is really random. Nice. But um but anyway, uh, they had they had one of those that had that had some insulation in it as well. And I mean, I I actually visited once the Teaching Drum Outdoor School, and they're up in northern Wisconsin, and they're living super primitively um, in the winter time. And I mean, people have lived primitively in the winter time throughout time. It's just a matter of being prepared and really knowing what you're doing and planning. And having sure. proper clothing, and so it, it was, it was fine. Um, but the challenge—I mean, honestly, my biggest challenge was I was lonely. Like I was there mostly with a couple, and um, and there was one other woman who lived there on and off, and then we'd have visitors that came through. But I was single at the time, and I was really lonely. And I ended up um, most weeks, I'd say, I went and stayed with a friend one night. And that was, I think, really helpful for me um, just to have more social interaction. But I think that, that, uh, that that's uh, just, we as humans are social beings. And I think a lot of people have this idea of like going off alone into the wilderness and it just doesn't work that way. So, um, so yeah, that was probably my biggest unmet need when I lived out there. Um, and then the physical stuff was really challenging and really good and I was young and in my early 20s and very strong and really up to the challenge so that was that was pretty okay um the um we definitely foraged a lot of our food and that was awesome and we were not able to meet all of our protein needs by trapping and hunting on the land. There just wasn't enough game to support it, but we did a lot of roadkill and we picked up a lot of roadkill and that was great. We had a freezer at a neighbor's house for a while and that was, that was helpful, you know, to keep that meat going through time. But eventually we phased that out and we, um, we just canned meat and dried meat and we're able to, able to keep it that way. Um, and, 
most all of our vegetable needs were were met by um, were met by having a small garden and by foraging, and so and by preserving the food that we forage from from season to season, so that we have access to it at different times. But you know, we still we still we dumpster dove some and we bought some food and. And so not all of our food needs were met off the land, but, but the vast majority were, and it was, yeah, it was really, it took a lot of time. Like people, I think often have this idea that, you know, primitive people lived in this idyllic way where they hardly worked or anything like that. And it's just total bullshit. Like we had to, I hope that's okay to say that. No, of course. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it took a lot of time. Like all of all of this foraging and all the food. I mean, the food processing is a huge amount of time, sure. and um, and it's really fun and it's really fulfilling. But it's a huge amount of time, and uh, yeah. So that's something that I think a lot of people don't account for is the amount of time that it takes just to like wash all of these tubers that you have dug up or preserve a bunch of medicine and make tinctures and strain them, you know, or like pick all the leaves off of all of the, all of the nettles because the stems are actually a fiber crop and don't taste like you'd be chewing forever, you know? So, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of time that goes into that. And I was able to take that time at that time in my life, you know, I didn't have any kids and I didn't have any debt, which was amazing. And I didn't have like the land was actually purchased by, um, kind of a philanthropist. So we didn't, we paid for the land taxes, but we didn't have a mortgage. And so all of us were able to put the time that it took into all of that, which was, which was such a blessing. And I, yeah, I really, I really loved it, but I think it's definitely not for everyone. And I think that if you have, you know, debt, if you have kids, if you have financial responsibilities, like it's really hard to do that. And it's especially a silly thing is I think I see a lot of people who, who take out big mortgages to buy some big piece of land and then they have to work all week and they don't get to be there and enjoy it. And that's just such a, such yeah. a tragic, silly thing. I think <laughs> yeah. that happens to more people. It's tricky though. I mean, to operate in a system as, as a plan to get out of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of funny hoops that you have to jump through that seem counterintuitive to what your actual goals are. But, you know, definitely. the situation is different from everyone and, or for yeah. everyone. And it's definitely been different for me all the different times that I've attempted to do this in different countries. Yeah. yeah and I'm in the process of doing it again and navigating the system here in Spain, which is very different than it was in Guatemala, than it was in the United States, than it was in Africa, yeah. you know, and so on. So um, totally. <laughs> maybe that's something that we should uh, put out some content on in the future is just how to make that transition in different contexts. Yeah, it's huge. And I think, I think one of the biggest things is just not biting up more than you can chew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, oh yeah. Small steps. I mean, that's probably the only universal thing that you could say in all contexts is like, don't yeah. get in over your head unless you really know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, exactly. 
So within that transition, so you started to move away from this very primitive lifestyle out of a desire to be with more community and to share your skills. And this eventually led to you creating your own homestead. Can you talk about how you made that transition? Yeah, definitely. So I went from Wild Roots um, to living with my former partner up in Boone who had his own homestead up there. And that didn't work out. And I had been looking with a big group of people um, to buy a big tract of land to start a community. And it was just too hard to find the piece of land that would meet everyone's needs. And so while that was going on, this piece of land, which was not at all what I was envisioning. Like I was envisioning like having some really wild, beautiful, like intact land for me to play and have my whole primitive, primitive, uh, uh, fantasy continue. Um, and what ended up coming up, what ended up falling in my lap was, um, was a piece of land that was about 20 minutes outside of Asheville and, uh, was directly behind, um, the land of some acquaintances where I had gone and actually cooked for a natural building workshop. And it, there was 17, were 17 acres that came up for sale and, me and my partner at the time and my former herb teacher, Juliet Blankespor, pooled money to buy this 17 acres. And we immediately split it up into three parcels, which I think is a great model if you're going to be buying to buy basically in bulk and then have a set of neighbors that you're happy with. And we wrote in a bunch of things into our deeds so that we have right of first refusal over each other's land. And so like when someone leaves, then we get somebody else who we like to take their place and, and a bunch of other, all sorts of things into our deeds so that we're just kind of guaranteeing certain things for our future, not having like a bunch of loud hunting dog breeding facilities next door. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are some essential things to think about. It's, yeah, it's yeah. really good that you did that kind of foreplanning. Oh man. It's so good. It was, it was largely, largely someone else is doing, which I'm so thankful for. But, um, but so we, we got this land and Juliet who, um, who runs the chestnut school of herbal medicine. It's now a really big online presence. She and I were going to pool money together and build a school, um, actually on the other side of what's now my land. And, uh, she was going to teach her herb classes there a couple days a week. And then I was going to teach, my classes there a couple days a week. And, um, and that didn't end up working out, but wild abundance has blossomed here on this land. I had started wild abundance before then. Um, soon after I started firefly just as a, as a place where I could see students, um, progression throughout a longer period of time rather than over four days, which the firefly event is just four days. And it's just been, it's been phenomenal, like how it's all come together and bringing on, um, there's now like four of us who do all the administration for the school and the marketing and all that. And then there's, there's a huge team of teachers. We have like 20 teachers and, uh, all sorts of classes, like ranging from, uh, earth skills and permaculture, which is our kind of our flagship program. And that's an eight, like a one weekend a month, eight month long program. And then we have, 
one class that's been really, really successful for us is women's carpentry. And that's just been so cool to expose women to these skills that just are so awesome for empowerment. And so, yeah, and we teach a lot. We are tiny house class does, it's almost full actually. And it does not until August. So yeah, we have regular permaculture classes. We have this long permaculture class. We have wild crafting. We have women's rewilding, which has been really fun, kind of getting back to my roots with that class. And then we have a eight-month apprenticeship that's a residential apprenticeship. People live um, live on site for uh, in these little seasonal huts for eight months, and that's a really fulfilling program. So yeah, it's kind of it's like a become a community huge community piece of it's funny I'm recovering from the flu and I'm having trouble like placing certain words (laughs) it's a pillar of the community and it's like brought a lot of primitive skills and earth-based living to an audience that I think otherwise wouldn't necessarily be exposed to it like I come from a very like anarcho-primitivist background and who comes to our classes like we have we have some people who come from that background, especially who do work trade for our classes, but it's exposing these skills to just so many different people. And that feels really good to me. I can imagine. Now with all of these things going on on the homestead, let's take a step back and, and kind of review the main structure of the place. So after you subdivided that land, how much do you have kind of that, that you manage yourself? Seven acres. Okay. And from there, how many people live on it and kind of what are the main things that time is dedicated to within the land? So there's, um, let's see here. I guess there's like seven or eight of us that live here year round. And then during the green season, I think there's like 14, something like that. And small community there. Yeah. Yeah, we have a little community. And then we're also surrounded by friends and neighbors who, mm-hmm. who are friends who are our neighbors. And so it's pretty awesome. Like, I, I can, to contrast this one with when I lived at Wild Roots, where I just didn't really know many people out there. Like, I don't really have to go more than a few miles to meet my social needs. It's yeah. really amazing. And especially I have a daughter now. And so she has like her best friend, she's three years old and her, well, I don't know if they really are best friends yet. I don't know if that's a thing when you're three, but um, <laughs> she has a friend who lives like a two minute walk away and it's just amazing. But, um, but yeah, so there's, yeah, we've got quite the community and people spend their time in really different ways depending on what they're doing. So, um, so me during the green season, I spend time gardening. I spend time, um, maintaining the wild here at our homestead, which, you know, initially was a pretty damaged forest. And so we've been, it had been a dairy farm like 40 years ago and then grown up from a dairy farm. So there's been, and it's beautiful, but it's, it's definitely in the process of healing and it, it really enjoys having help in that direction. And then also going to the deep woods. I, I really still need to go to the wild to get that, get that piece of myself. Um, 
fulfilled. So that's, that's big. And then I teach a lot during the, during the summer months, I'm teaching like 80 hours a month or something. So that's a big piece of it and spending time with my family and preparing and preserving food. So that's, that's a lot of my time during the summer months In the winter months, I'm doing a lot of, um, you know, dealing with fires and, and wood storage and all that good stuff, which is awesome. And then, preserving food or I guess preparing food during the winter more. And I do honestly, I mean, this is really funny. People don't think of this as being a big part of my life, but I do a fair amount of office work and administration during the winter that to help keep the school running. So that's a, that's a big piece and, um, and reaching out and, and just communicating with other people like doing this podcast and so that's a big part of my winter time. Um, my partner used to be, you know, we, we connected because actually he worked for Firefly, um, but he was really into uh, permaculture and really into forest gardening. And we geeked out on that together a lot when we first got together. But now he's, he's an astrologer and he's so into it and he's really into also um mythology and he's he's writing a book on gilgamesh right now so that's his thing um but he occasionally has a spurt where he comes out and does does a bunch of does a bunch of land work but it's pretty funny and then uh my the people who live here um the apprentices are really focused like they have a whole curriculum and i myself and frank my partner um, help guide them in this process of deep reconnection and learning or skills. And so basically they're, you know, 40 hours a week, like reading, um, working on a naturalist notebook, working in the apprentice garden, doing, um, doing all these reconnection activities and writing. And so they're, and going to classes. So they're really focused on that. Um, and then we have a perennial caretaker who, who really takes care of a lot of our perennials and they live here just during the green season. And, um, yeah, so that's, and, and then there's one other person who lives here who does a lot of our graphic design and videography and stuff like that. So she does that and then she's just stoked to be living in the woods. So that's her, that's her thing. So let's talk now a little bit about kind of how things are divided up because that's one of the things I find that people don't have a good idea about when they are idealizing sort of a homesteading lifestyle. Yeah. Um, what are some of the main things that you and your family dedicate most of your time to? And is it towards sort of a larger ambition of self-sustainability or uh, self-reliance? Or do you really kind of factor in the larger community like you've talked about, not just the people who live there, but the community kind of close around you as a big aspect of your resilience? You know, that's a really good question. So um, at times in my life, I've been much more focused specifically on self-reliance. Um, and at this point, and, and that's been really fulfilling and a huge, huge thing for me. And at this point in my life, I'm much more focused on doing, um, on community reliance and resilience. And so 
we, um, you know, I don't have, I don't have chickens. We usually buy our eggs from our neighbor and that's awesome. And, um, and I used to meet, you know, I don't know, probably 85% of my food needs, um, from foraging or gardening myself. And now that number has definitely gone down as I access more community networks and like do the things that I'm really good at and give money to friends who are really good at this other thing and, um, and do a lot of barter and stuff like that too. So, and I think as the school has grown too, it's taken more and more of my time to where I can't like, it's, and it is a, kind of ironic, but like the fact that I'm spending so much time teaching all this stuff means that I have less time to dedicate to the massive amount of time that it takes to grow all of your own food. And um, we actually have Chloe and Kaylin who live up the road. They're our friends and, and they um, both teach for the school and Chloe does administration for the school as well. And they do more of a, I mean, they probably meet definitely at least 85% of their food needs from the land. They grow all their own corn to, to make all their own tortillas and cornbread. And they, um, they have a milk cow and they have goats and they have all these other things. And, and that I think that that's something to really think about is, you know, especially animal agriculture takes such a massive amount of time and resources and land. And if you are doing other things with your life, it's really hard to, it's really hard to maintain that. Yeah. And so I think when you're visioning, that's, that's something that I actually really recommend to my students is really thinking long and hard of how important it is to you to meet your own needs for protein and to be doing animal agriculture or does it work for you to just barter with someone else who does? Because like, you know, there's no way that I could have that many people on seven acres of land and also have enough animals to support the, um, support those needs, nor like huge fields for like grain production. If we were, if we were meeting all of our grain needs as well, it's just, it's, it drastically increases the amount of land that you need to live on. If you are, if you have animals and if you are growing grains and the amount of time, that goes into both of those things is huge. So I think that I think that it's important to really examine what you want to do and to spend time on other people's farms or homesteads and understand the lifestyle that's required to um, to be super purist, really. Yeah. yeah. And and so yeah, I, I've kind of been there been to the purest spot and it was great and I'm not there anymore. And that I feel totally good and fine about it. Well, I think it probably makes it a lot easier for you to relate to so many of the students and peers who come through looking to learn and make a transition kind of towards that because you've been much further than most of them are going to be willing to go and you can give advice from personal experience about what that lifestyle looks like. And one of the things I really liked that you mentioned a minute ago was 
just how much of your time was dedicated to tasks that most people don't think about when they're dreaming about this lifestyle, much okay. like uh, food processing, right? Oh yeah, um, definitely. And firewood. Firewood is huge, firewood, especially yeah. like when I lived at Wild Roots and we because it's not just eating. Not to use a chainsaw. You know, mm. if you're not using a chainsaw, <laughs> it really changes how much time firewood takes. Yeah. And we were hauling everything out of the woods by hand, like we we weren't we weren't using a truck or anything to haul anything. It was it was, it was a lot of work. Yeah. Whereas here, it's it's a very different. We have a chainsaw. <laughs> it's like we have a truck. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of some of the pros and cons of having so many people actually living in your homestead community. Do you prefer some of the autonomy of having your own space? Or do you think that there's a minimum number of people needed to take care of all of the work that goes into a homesteading lifestyle? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I really enjoy not sharing a kitchen. (laughs) <laughs> except with my family. I think yeah. that that's a huge, like I really like community a lot and I've shared a lot of kitchens and I tend to get really pissed off like at people, like for little things, like they're just like always leave their egg pan out or whatever. Mm. And then it like builds up resentment over time. It's just so funny. I'm just like so much nicer to people when I'm not sharing a kitchen with them. Um, so, but I think that, um, I think that it depends on what scale you're doing things on. Like, I think it can be really great if you're going to have a milk cow to share it between a few families. You know, if you are going to be growing a garden, I think that you can do it with just a little nuclear family if you wanted to. If you want to be growing your grains, you're probably going to want to have, um, a bigger community that you are, um, that you are sharing work with. And I think the way that you have that bigger community, there's just so many different models. Like I have friends who, um, five adults bought land together, you know, and they, they have a little community and they all share a kitchen and a household and that totally works for them, you know? And, There's other situations like here we have more like small households, but then we come together to do things a lot. Like we'll come together to um, plant garlic or we'll come together to do work parties or we'll come together for different things. And, um, and then there's like, I've lived on communes that have like 70 people and it's all, all the labor's organized in this very complex work program and you know that works too like it's I think I think a lot of it just is personal taste and I think that it also like I'm we're really spoiled here that it's so easy to help each other out like we might have these small households but we live like a five minute walk from each other and that's really different from like I have a lot of friends who live up in Vermont and, you know, it's like an hour, 45 minutes to their nearest friend's house. And so then that means that they have to be the ones to deal with all of their own stuff because it just takes so long to like go to a friend's house to like preserve tomatoes together when, or to help each other out with firewood or whatever, when it's not even worth it because it's so far to go. And yeah. so... Yeah, I, I just really like proximity. I think it's it's huge for me personally. 
Well, so from my own kind of limited experience, because I've never done anything in such a long term as you have, or quite as extreme. Like I've done, you know, living out in the middle of the wilderness on trail crews in the national parks before, but then we'd come back into town like, you know, uh, once or twice a month. And I've done kind of in-town homesteading operations and small community living organizations. I've done a lot of different configurations of this, just not really long term. And it's, you know, it's a good way to kind of figure out what works for you. And like you said, everybody's got kind of different necessities. The way I would put it is you kind of have to decide beforehand which of the things you care most about being self-sufficient for. And it's not always yeah. the things that people uh, think of when, when you're homesteading, right? Like what you mentioned, you could be food self-sufficient, but <laughs> that's really going to put a cap on how many people you include in that plan and how much land you're able to yeah. get, right? But then there's yeah. other self-sufficiency like social self-sufficiency, right? Yeah. If, yeah. if you really don't need that community, well, it maybe it opens it up. Um, to put more effort into other things. But if you do, you're going to have to pick and choose from some of the other categories, but you just, you can't do it all. You can't be self-sufficient yeah. in every, every way. Yeah. And I think not feeling bad about things either. I mean, it's yeah. like, obviously all of us who are living this lifestyle have some motivation coming from like our own consciousness of the resources we're using, you know, I, I think that's a huge motivating factor for most of us and we're never going to be perfect. You know, like we are not plants. We don't work in a perfect system. The deck is stacked against you at least in some categories. Exactly. And so I think just staying positive is just really important. I agree because it can be so easy to get burned out and then despair and then stop trying. I find that to be the biggest trap where it's like, well, I can't do some of these things that I really wanted to, or at least not all the way, not to the, you know, the maximum that I would have dreamed about. And so you start to despair and you just kind of become apathetic about the whole process. And man, that can kind of spiral. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Well, so with all this um, kind of having painted a picture of your situation now where you've come from and, and the way things are, are situated, the community, the, the level of self-sufficiency you currently have, it gives us a really good picture of like how to put this in context. And so one of my last questions here would be um, looking to, to dedicate your time to the things that you most care about or, or moving forward with the, the project. What do you most want to continue to develop or fine tune in the system that you've built so far? I would say that um our perennial plantings like all of our fruit and nut trees i think that i've done a lot of experimentation um taking you know gummy berries and pawpaws and mulberries and all these a lot of a lot of trees that are not um traditionally grown in this region and a lot of these like per, quote unquote permaculture species and have tried growing them here. And a lot of stuff has worked and a lot of stuff hasn't worked. And so, um, which is great information, you know, because I'm probably one of the first people growing gummy berries in North Carolina, you know? Sure. And so taking that information about what has worked and what's not worked, because a lot of those trees are coming into fruitful maturity and, um, tearing out things that aren't working. I actually just today tore out a fig tree that was planted somewhere where it fruited once in eight years. And so I determined that this does not belong here. 
<laughs> and so I'm transplanting it somewhere else. And yeah, making... sometimes you got to be brutal with that triage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just brutally honest with yourself. And so I'm probably going to be replacing about a third of, um, of my plantings with other things, um, probably in the next five years. And so that's, that's kind of scary and sad and also really exciting. And, um, continuing to work with the native forest as it is, that's, that's a, an edge for us for sure. And, um, also working with the community that we have here that we've kind of come into. I think that that's, um, that's another big, big edge for us. Uh, and then there's also, it's interesting, like with my, with my, cause I grow perennials, but I grow also grow annual vegetables and, um, we have a big, uh, pest and disease, disease load here in the Southeast because we just have so much rain during the mean that we have a lot of funguses and we have a lot of insects. And, um, so figuring out some stuff with, uh, with my annuals is interesting. Like I'm a big mulcher. I'm really into mulching and into, and I think that that can also contribute to pest load. And so figuring, and that's something that I didn't see for the first few years that I was on the site because it's something that accumulates over time. And yeah. so looking at, you know, possibly burning some of my crop debris and maybe making biojar. I, I, I'm, I'm examining that. And it's interesting because I've been gardening for like 25 years, but I am continuing to learn and thankfully continuing to learn. And so I'm reexamining some of the like deep tenants that I've always had and held. And, um, and looking for possible new solutions is, I mean, things are really different living in a globalized world where pests, you know, are global. They're not just a local pest that, and when I talk with old timers about growing fruits and vegetables and they used to grow everything organically and now they're like, Oh, you can't grow that or without spray here. Like it's just impossible. And yeah. so, because we have all these new pests, and so well, I would um, imagine it's also because you have many less of the of the wildlife that would otherwise have kept yes. them at tolerable levels too. Yeah, it's true. That's very true. And so, yeah, it's funny. This friend of mine one time mentioned how when he was a kid, and you drive down the road, like your windshield would get covered in bugs. Oh man, I always remember that too. And, and now, now nothing. Yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. Um, it's one of those signs. A, yeah, it's such a funny little thing, but it really brings it into reality. But um, but yeah. So I'd say those are the those are the big like fine tuning things that that I'm working on now. And and also I'm I'm really into building. Like I love building. It's one of my huge passions. And we have a lot of buildings here. <laughs> It's really funny. I mean, I've only been on this piece of land for nine years, but we, and it started with zero buildings, but now we have, we have lots and lots and lots and lots of buildings, like over 20. If you That's count, awesome. what, what are the building types that you tend towards or that do well where you are? Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny. 
I would say it's, it's, we, we have a lot of variety, <laughs> lots okay. of lot of variety, but I have a log cabin that I built. It's a round log log cabin, which I would not recommend, but was a really good learning experience. And, um, on the log cabin, there's a, there's a straw clay addition. It's called light slip straw is another, is another name for that. It's natural. Yep. Building. And, um, with a timber frame. I mean, we have a lot of wood here, basically. There's lots of trees. And so we mostly build with wood. And so there's a log cabin, there's a slip straw um, addition that's framed out with a timber frame. And then we have, um, we built, the outdoor kitchen is a round log timber frame. So I guess, you know, a big theme is, is wood. And we've milled a lot of trees here too. We've done a lot of stick framing. And so we have several apprentice shelters, which are either, either um, post and beam or stick framed. And our newest building is actually, we're calling it the sun house. And it's this, it's the 12 by 16 passive solar building, which is really awesome. I've gotten more and more into passive solar over the years. It's just such a no brainer. If you can heat and cool using using the sun it's yeah especially really, that far north yeah we're not that far north we're i think we're i think we're actually the same um the same latitude as spain sure north but north. we have the gulf stream at least for a yeah, while we do, do. <laughs> yeah it's the gulf stream is such a crazy such i mean yeah we're really far north but i mean i would always try and do something with uh passive yeah. solar here the thing Probably is that the criteria yeah. is different your winters are a lot more extreme and we need to protect ourselves more yeah. from the summers yes 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 yeah that's a really a really clear way of saying it um yeah so it's really nice to have and we're high elevation which is even though we're only we're in North Carolina, it's like a lot of places are going to be like Charleston, for example, is going to be very similar lined up even without the Gulf Stream to a lot of parts of Spain. But us being at we're at you know twenty five hundred feet, so it it makes a big difference. Yeah, and further um, inland, yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. That's a good point. Well, and so yeah. No, no. So so with all that, like kind of experience that you've talked to from here, what would you most recommend to people who are looking to make this transition? I mean, obviously you've been an educator for a very long time too and, and kind of taught people some of the essential skills to make that transition. What do you think are some of either the, the things that people need to be doing some investigation and learning on or some skills that they need to be building uh, to really get a good start in that transition towards a, either a homesteading or, or more self-sustainable lifestyle? Well, that's a really good question. I think that um, either taking classes or um, staying on farms or homesteads mm. is really important to do one of those two things and figure out what you like and what you want before you buy a piece of land. Definitely before that stage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's huge. And probably before even deciding that that's what you want to do. Yeah. So, um, and I know that it can be expensive to take classes. It can be expensive to like quit your job and go live on a farm too, you know, but I think that doing those things, like you can save so much time and so much money by doing the research and figuring out what you want before you actually do it. 
Yeah, and, it's definitely uh, cheaper than buying a piece of land and then realizing you don't want to live that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think another another big piece of advice is figuring out if you want animals to be part of the picture. Mm. And because that goes into, I think, buying, honestly, as little land as you can. Sure. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense because just the amount of money that goes into that is huge. And I think that there are other valid, great ways of living on the land that don't involve purchasing lands, but the security that goes along with purchasing land is really helpful if you're going to be investing in a place so much. Yeah. I think it's really big. But if you can buy an acre of land, like you can do a lot on an acre of land as long as you're not trying to keep horses or cows or... Oh, you can definitely grow more vegetables than you could ever consume on an acre. Yeah. Definitely. And yeah, if not that even acre close, land, yeah, like a tenth of an acre, you could grow more than you could eat from, from a garden. Definitely. And if that happens to be um, surrounded by some sort of park, like when I lived in Spain, actually, I lived in a squat um, in the outskirts of Barcelona called Can Masteo, and it was surrounded by a mountain forest park. And so it just, just like having access to public land can be really, really helpful as long as they don't log it or do any stupid, stupid shit. But, um, having, have, owning a small amount and then having access to wildland or to parks or whatever can be really, really helpful. So I think, I think also looking at if you do buy a piece of land, are you going to have to commute from that piece of land to a normal nine to five job? And I think that's a mistake that I, I just see people make a lot. They're like, oh, land costs half as much if I live an hour from town. But then I'm moving <laughs> an hour every, each way every day. And that time just, is so undervalued. Yeah, it's so undervalued. And if you like do the numbers and you like pretend like you're paying yourself for your time of travel, it just becomes very obvious that that's a bad idea. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I think, I think getting less land looking at collaboration with other people, um, both to meet needs for community as well as to um, cut down on costs, which means that you have to go to work less, which is awesome. Um, and I think making sure that you try all this stuff out before you do it and make sure that you like it is really important because there's a lot of people who might have philosophically agree with um, the ideals and the ideas of rewilding, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they enjoy living a homesteading type lifestyle. Yep. And that's okay. I think it's just really important <laughs> yep. to accept yourself and, um, and do, do your best with what you've got. Very well said. I love that. Um, so before we go, can you point our listeners in the direction of where they can find more information about, uh, well, your school and every way that they can get in touch and find out more about your educational programs. Sure. Um, our website is wellbus.net and there you can find all sorts of information about all our classes. And also we have a really great newsletter. It's really awesome. And every month we send out kind of a, a to-dos that it's like, what's going on in the garden? And foraging possibilities and um and what to do in the orchard for that month so signing up for our newsletter can be a really awesome way to access that and we also have 
some really amazing content on our blog. Chloe, who I mentioned to, who lives a super hardcore homesteading lifestyle. She does most of the writing for the blog and it's just, it's a great free resource. So I'd really recommend checking it out. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to put the links to everything you just mentioned in the show notes for this episode. And Natalie, it was such a pleasure talking to you. I really (laughs) appreciate the perspective from your experience and all the wisdom that you've gained in in the process. It's been really, uh, it's really good to hear this kind of stuff kind of reinforced because I think it's so important for people who idealize this type of lifestyle. And I think even more than, than maybe some of the cautionary aspects uh, detracting from the enthusiasm in the beginning. I think even if it means that you kind of lose some of that uh, rose-colored glasses kind of way of looking at things, it'll it'll much more set people up for success if they're willing to take the steps and analyze what it is that's really important about the lifestyle before they get started. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Well, um, until we catch up the next time, and, and I definitely want to explore more about the things that you teach in in a future episode so let's keep in touch and we'll talk again soon thanks so much thank you oliver goodbye Bye. all right that wraps things up for this week's episode if you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it as well as articles and other resources you can find the full library of previous podcasts at abundantedge.com the best part is that you can search by category topics or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at abundantedge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.